0: It's so good to see everybody here in one room together. Thank you so much for being here and worshiping with us this morning. Yeah, thank you. It's also nice to be preaching Sermon 2 of 2 and not 2 of 3 right now. Uh, There are certain topics in the Bible that we tend to gravitate toward, and, and, and understandably so, we gravitate toward topics like God's love God's forgiveness, His grace. We gravitate toward topics like heaven. Uh, There's other topics that we tend to kind of de-emphasize, such as God's wrath, uh, God's judgment. And I just want to point out, one of the positive aspects of going through books of the Bible, the way we do, is we are encouraged to hear for all of the topics. We don't just sort of pick and choose. And we hear them proportionate to how often they appear in Scripture. So in other words, if you kind of think, I wish he preached more on this, and I wish he preached less on that. You know, your issue is not really with me. (laughs) If I'm just going through texts, right? If I'm just going through books, we're hearing the subjects at the frequency that they come up in the scriptures. And today, we're going to address two topics that we might naturally be inclined to sort of avoid or de-emphasize. We're going to be talking about sin, and we're going to be talking about hell. And I just want to point out, it's good. It's good for us to address these topics. If God deemed it valuable to speak about these topics, then we, his people, wouldn't it make sense, would listen. And so my hope is that we will have ears to hear and receive this this morning as God's very word, because that's what it is. So if you would, please turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 9. If you would please stand in honor of the reading of God's Word for those who are able. I am going to begin reading in verse 42, and this is the very inspired Word of God. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? So have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Let's pray. Father, we recognize this is your word, and therefore it is good. We confess our tendency might be to avoid or de-emphasize topics like we find here in this verse, in this passage but I pray you'll give us ears to hear and receive it as, as from you. And therefore, we would receive it as for our good and for your glory. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. I think the main point of this passage is about why we should not sin. And I think there's sort of 2 subpoints: How our sin impacts others and how our sin impacts us. And so let's take these separately. First of all, let's, let's talk about our sin and others. Look at verse 42. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. Now we looked at this verse last week, and we really focused in on the idea that this verse, the little ones here, uh, can be represented by children. And we said this because just in a previous verse, in in verses 36 and 37, Jesus actually picked up a little child and held him or her in his hands and said, whoever receives a child like this in my name receives me. And so I think that's an accurate way to, to think about the little ones as children. But I also think we have to consider this verse, verse 42, in light of the immediate context of the verses that just preceded it in verses 38 through 41 where John comes to Jesus and says, hey, we saw a man casting out demons and we told him to stop. He needed to quit that because he's not one of us, one of the 12. And remember how Jesus responded to him? He said, you don't need to tell him to stop. If he's not against us, he's for us. And and in verse 40, he says, the one who is not against us is for us. And then verse 41, look at verse 41. For truly I say to you, Whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ, that person will by no means lose his reward. And then verse 42, whoever causes one of these little ones to sin, it would be better for that person to drown. Is basically what he says. So the context here is still about greatness in the kingdom of God. What does greatness in the kingdom of God look like? Last week we said it looks like you serve. Other people, we serve one another. And perhaps other people, one of the examples he has in mind here is other people like the man who was casting out demons that perhaps the disciples didn't treat very well. And perhaps he's an example of one of these little ones. Maybe he's little in the sense that he's young. He's new to the faith. And I think it's possible that Jesus is addressing the way the disciples treated him. And they're saying, I think Jesus may be saying, don't provoke other people unnecessarily. Don't provoke them to sin. Treat them well. Care about them. Another very strong argument in favor of reading it this way is the way our passage ends in verse 50. Look at how the whole passage ends. Be at peace with one another. Don't be at odds with each other. Don't be constantly looking for fights. Be at peace with one another as far as it depends on you. The great millstone that he talks about would be a, you know, a really large stone, very heavy, that would be used for grinding something like grain. And Jesus uses a very graphic image here. He says it would be better for you to tie this millstone around your neck and be thrown in the water and drown. You know, we have a phrase for that, swimming with the fishes. Right? It would be better for you to swim with the fishes than what? Then to cause someone to sin, to cause one of these little ones to sin, to provoke someone to sin. In other words, the judgment that's coming to those who cause others to sin, the judgment is so great it would be better for that person to go drown and die. That's the point. Jesus is making the point, I, therefore I'm making the point, right? And I just want to point out that this is very consistent with other passages of scripture. This is not an isolated teaching here. Uh, There are other passages that say something very similar. For example, Matthew 25, Jesus talks about the sheep and the goats, and he says, the sheep are going to be those who who fed me when I was hungry and clothed me when I was in need and met my needs. And the goats are going to be the ones who say, we never saw you in need. If we had seen you in need, then surely we would have Loved you and served you in that way, but we never saw you. And listen to what Jesus says Matthew 25, verse 40. Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. How you treat the least of these, how you treat one another, how you treat God's people, Jesus says, that's how you treat me. So, how my question for you is this How do you treat Jesus? I'll tell you how you treat Jesus. How do you treat his bride? How do you treat his church? How do you treat his people? How do you treat the people of God? That is how you treat Jesus. And Jesus is saying here, therefore, be at peace with one another. Don't provoke one another. Don't cause little ones to sin among you. It would be better for you to die than to face the judgment that is coming for those who cause the little one to sin. Uh, John MacArthur, I think, helpfully points out four ways that we can cause others to sin. I think this is helpful to consider. The first way that we can cause others to sin is obvious. This is just direct temptation. This is when you say to somebody, oh, come on, you know, everybody's doing it. Come on, it's no big deal. You know, this is typically what we think of when we think of causing someone else to sin. Direct temptation, that's the obvious. Here's some less obvious examples though. Indirect temptation. For example, Ephesians 6.4 says, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. One of the ways fathers can provoke their children to anger is to be absent, to not be affectionate, to not be involved, to not care, to be removed from your child. This can cause a child to sin. It can cause a child to have great anger, great bitterness. And you are indirectly tempting your child toward bitterness, toward anger, toward sin, By not being engaged, involved, not caring. So that would be an example of a way of causing one of the little ones to sin. Here's a third way we can cause others to sin. We can set a sinful example. If you call yourself a Christian, a Christ follower, then you're saying to people, I'm following Christ. So follow me as I follow Christ. And people are watching you. You know, if you identify in that way, they're watching you. Like, what do Christians do? Where do they go? Who do they hang out with? What kinds of activities do they engage in? People are watching you. You are setting an example. So the question is, is it a good one? Are you causing people to sin, potentially, by the example that you're setting? Think about your neighbors. Your neighbors see you. They interact with you. They see how you treat kids in the neighborhood. They see if you yell at kids who step on your lawn, right? They, they, they hear you. They hear the way you talk about things. They see what you do on the Lord's Day. Do you gather with God's people for worship on the Lord's Day? Or do you sleep in and mow the lawn and do what everybody else does on the Lord's Day? Are you setting a godly example for the people who watch? Third, or fourth, and this is the one I really want to focus in on. We can cause others to sin, listen to this, by failing to stir up one another to love and good works. This is the hardest one because it's not something we're, we're doing, it's something we're not doing. We are called to stir one another up toward love and good deeds, to stimulate one another, to, to motivate one another and encourage one another toward Christ's likeness. Listen to Hebrews 10, 24 and 25. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So, in other words, we are supposed to come together, and one of the major purposes of coming together is to encourage each other. Pursue Christ's likeness. I want to encourage you, I want to motivate you. Like we come together, and I have the goal of I want to help you become more like Christ. Imagine a church full of people who came for that purpose. Imagine what a church would feel like in your Sunday school classes, in the hallways, if we all came and our primary instinct was, yes, we want to worship God and we're here to worship God, but one of the ways we worship God is by encouraging, stirring up each other toward love and good works. Think about the alternatives. Like we could come for the primary purpose of just kind of talking about the weather or our sports team and those things aren't bad you know I'm not suggesting we shouldn't do those I would be guilty of some of that right uh, but if that's kind of the main thing like let's just get together and small talk you know that's not going to do a lot of good we could get together and just talk about the latest headlines in the news that we've been watching all week and keeping up with and then we get together with our friends and kind of rant and rave about can you believe this can you did you read that did you see this did you see that that, that wouldn't be overly edifying Right? Um, we could get together and just kind of bicker and complain. I wonder why they keep it so hot in here. I wonder why they keep it so cold in here, right? And, and all the other little things, you know? why are we doing this? Why aren't we doing that? Why is there more of this? Why is there more of that? You know, or or we could get together. And our primary goal, and our primary motivation is, what can I do today? What can I say today? Who can I talk to today? for the primary purpose of encouraging them in the faith. Right? I'm guessing you've had somebody in your life who's been like that, who did that. A coach, a parent, a teacher, a grandparent. When you saw them coming, you, know, you, you just looked forward to talking to them. They made you feel like a million bucks. Like, oh man, they're about to just breathe life into me. I'm looking forward to this conversation. Some people you see coming and you go, oh boy, here we go. I wonder what this is gonna be about. You know? What are they gonna have this time? Some people you see coming and you go, oh, man, this is going to be good. Right? Here's my point. Don't you want to be that person that other people see coming and go, oh, I'm looking forward to talking to her. I'm looking forward to talking to him. He's about to encourage me in the faith, right? So, uh, I hope that's motivating. I hope, I hope you say, yeah, I want to be that person. I want other people in my Sunday school class, my friends, people at church, I want people to think of me as that person who stirs them up toward love and good works. And if that doesn't motivate you, at at very least, don't you want to make sure you're not the person that this passage is warning against? Jesus says it would be better for you to have a millstone tied around your neck and thrown into the water. Don't you want to make sure you're not that person? Like, somebody is that person, right? He's talking about somebody. He's warning you against somebody. We'd be pretty arrogant to think, there's no chance that's me. Don't you want to make sure this is not you? And one way you can be confident it's not you is to be the opposite of what he's talking about here. Be the person who, when you gather with God's people, you gather for the purpose of stirring up toward love and good works. Now let's transition and talk about sin and you or sin and me. In verse 43, it sort of turns the mirror and puts it on us and says, okay, now we're no longer thinking about others per se. We're talking about you, your sin, how it impacts you. And Jesus says, look, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. If your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. If your eye causes you to sin, cut it out. And he says, the reason is this. It would be better to go to heaven and not have all your members intact than to go to hell with all your body parts. That's what he says. So the point is pretty obvious. The point is, you do whatever it takes to make sure you don't sin. And the reason why is because it's not worth it. Now we have to ask this obvious question, is he being literal? (laughs) Like, is he literally talking about, I need to cut my hand off if my hand causes me to sin? There's two questions we can ask to try to determine if a passage is literal, if it's exaggerated, if it's hyperbole. There's two questions we can ask. First of all, is it, is it possible? Like, is it literally possible? So, for example, when Jesus says it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle, I mean, is that possible for a camel to go through an eye of a needle? No. Therefore, I think that's an example of exaggeration. Another question we can ask is, does this contradict other teachings in Scripture? So, for example, when Jesus says, if you want to follow me, you have to hate your father and your mother, does that go against any other verses in the Bible? I think about, yeah, honor your father and mother. So clearly, that's an example of exaggeration. So do we have exaggeration here? Does this teaching cut your hand off, cut your leg off, cut your eye out? Does that conflict with other teachings in Scripture? I would say it does. Because the Bible's pretty clear. Your body is a temple of God. You're supposed to honor it. We're not supposed to desecrate the body. We're supposed to honor it, value it. Deuteronomy 14.1 says, you shall not cut yourselves. So there'd be one argument. I would say I think this is an example of exaggeration because I think if we literally followed it, we would be con- conflicting with other teachings in the Bible. The next question is, is it possible? I would argue that cutting off your hand, foot, or eye doesn't actually prevent you from sinning. And I think Jesus is saying the same thing. I asked my kids this past week, what is sin? And my younger son gave me a great definition. I think he learned it from Awana. He said, sin is anything you think, say, or do that disobeys God. It's pretty good. Anything you think, say, or do that disobeys God. So if I cut my foot and my hand and my eye, can I still think, say, and do things that disobey God? Yes, I can. They're not going to actually prevent me from sinning. And Jesus told us back in Mark 7 that sin comes from within. It comes from the heart. So for these reasons, I don't think he's being literal. And you may say, "Oh, that makes me feel so much better." Like the point just got weakened. But that's not the way exaggeration works. He doesn't use exaggeration in order to weaken the point. You use exaggeration in order to heighten the point, strengthen the point. What's the point? You do whatever it takes to make sure you don't sin. And by you do whatever it takes, I'm I'm talking about categories like cutting limbs off of your body. That's how serious I am about how serious you should take sin. So how then might we apply this? How might this passage supposed to be applied? Let me give a couple of examples. Example number one, let's say you have a computer at your house. And you have a pattern of going to certain websites you shouldn't. And you've tried to stop, and you've done all kinds of things, and you just can't. You just can't stop. You say, what do I do? Well, according to this passage, I think one way you could apply it is you get rid of your computer. And you would naturally say, but you don't understand. I mean, I just bought it, and it was really expensive. And I have to have a computer. It's where I work. It's where I go to school. It's, it's how I do my banking. It's, it's how I communicate with people. And you, you, the answer is, you do whatever it takes you go use the computer at the library. You go find a friend who allows you to come over to his house and use a computer when he or she is there. You, you do whatever it takes. That's the point of the passage. Another example. Let's say you travel for work. You're gone a lot. You're always traveling. And Let's say you have a pattern, a tendency to do things you shouldn't do and go places you shouldn't go when you're traveling. You say, what do I do? How do I deal with this? You, you do whatever it takes. Maybe you take a friend with you. you say, I can't take a friend every time I travel and go to work. Okay. You find another job. But you don't understand. It's a great job. It pays really well. I really like it. Jesus is saying here, it would be better to go to heaven with a job you don't really like than to go to hell with a job you really like. I mean, that's the application. You do whatever it takes and the motivation here he's holding out before us is hell I think we need to talk about hell because Jesus talks about it quite a bit it's referred to quite a bit in our passage he describes it verse 48 as the place where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched that's a, a pretty much a direct quote from Isaiah sixty-six twenty-four, the very last verse of the book of Isaiah and so uh, this is some of the image that he's using it comes from Isaiah the word hell In Greek is the word Gehenna comes from a Hebrew phrase, Valley of Hinnom, which is an area just south of Jerusalem where there was this sort of constant burning, constant fire, constant smoldering, sort of a garbage dump. An awful place, a place you didn't want to go, a place I'm sure that smelled. And that's the kind of imagery. That's the imagery that's used to describe hell. Some people will say, well, maybe Hell is figurative in the same kind of way that cutting off the hand or the foot or the eye is figurative. Maybe we're just talking about figurative here. In fact, I heard a pastor who told a story. One time somebody came up to him and said, Pastor, the phrase about the unquenchable fire and the worm not dying, you know, is this literal or is this figurative? And he responded and said, I think it's figurative. And the person sort of said, Oh, you know, that makes me feel so much better. And he said, No, I think it's actually describing something that's much worse. I think it's much worse than an unquenchable fire. Unquenchable fire is like the worst thing we can imagine. That's the worst imagery that's that's accessible to us. The unquenchable fire where it constantly burns and, and the worm does not die. That's like the worst image we can wrap our minds around and that's pointing us toward hell, which is much worse. It's as bad as it can possibly be. Like, think about the thing that that you can possibly conceive of that would be the worst possible experience. That's getting at the direction of what hell is. The main point is, it's punishment. It's punishment from God. It's God's wrath, God's judgment, God's punishment. And secondly, it's eternal. It's unending, it's forever. Our doctrinal statement says it like this. The unrighteous will be consigned to hell, the place Of everlasting punishment the word Gehenna which is behind our word hell we find it 12 times in the New Testament 11 of those are on the lips of Jesus so Jesus talks about hell more often than anybody else in the Bible some people will say let's just be like Jesus and talk about love and grace and forgiveness if you want to be like Jesus guess what you got to talk about hell because he talked about hell more often than anyone else And I think it's important to recognize who his audience is. Who is he talking with about hell? You don't see Jesus talking to the world that much about hell. That's how we usually think about hell. We got to go tell the world they're going to hell. Jesus isn't telling the world they're going to hell. Jesus is talking to his disciples here. And he usually is. That's usually the context. He's talking to his disciples and he's warning them. You guys need to put sin to death in your lives you need to take it seriously and I'm the motivation that I'm putting out there for you is the idea of hell is that serious don't go down that path don't go down a path of sin that will and can lead to hell so guess what that leads me to believe you and I need to be reminded and motivated if Jesus found it important to motivate his disciples by talking about hell Don't you think it would be important and appropriate for us to talk about getting motivated to pursue righteousness, to put to death the deeds of the flesh, and one of the motivations would be hell. And The the point is, yeah, it might be a little costly now. It might be a little difficult now. Saying no to the flesh now might be difficult, but it's worth it. That's the point of the passage. It's worth it. The alternative is not worth it. I think that's why he... What he says in verse 49. For everyone will be salted with fire. This is a challenging verse interpretively. It's hard to know how to interpret this. Everyone will be salted with fire. What does that mean? Where does that come from? I think the imagery is coming from the Old Testament sacrifices. Many of which were required to be salted before they were placed on the altar to be burned and I think we are supposed to think of ourselves as the sacrifice Romans 12 1, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice salted we're supposed to be salty salt of the earth and our our lives our bodies are a living sacrifice but guess what that involves some fire that fire might come in many different forms it might be the fire of pe- putting to death the deeds of the flesh it might be the fire from external opposition but the point is we expect a little fire now and Jesus is saying it's okay better a little fire now than a lot of fire down the road I think that's the point right here's your options you can say I don't want to experience any of the fire now I don't want to offer my life as a living sacrifice I don't want the fire or the salt now I just want to live life the way I want to live it and Jesus says okay but do you know what's coming we're talking about hell we're talking about where the flame cannot be quenched it's not worth it that's foolish the alternative makes so much more sense. it will experience a little fire now, a little salt now, a little self-sacrifice now. But do you know what comes at the end of that? Life. Eternal life. Kingdom of God life. It's worth it. And I just want to point out, Jesus is not talking about those who are really serious. Like how many of you want to be the really serious, committed Christians? This is who I'm talking to. You know, those who want Jesus on the throne. Jesus is Lord the non-carnal Christians who are really spirit-filled. He's not making these two distinct categories. He's saying, this is just sort of bare-bones, fundamental, basic 101, mere Christianity. You want to follow me? You want to be a follower of mine? You want to believe in me and receive all the benefits that come with that? He's talking to you. Take up your cross and follow me. Offer your life as a living sacrifice. Everyone will be salted with fire. That's why he goes on in verse 50, our final verse. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? So have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Jesus says we are the salt of the earth. We preserve the world. We preserve the earth. We are supposed to be salty. We're supposed to be light. In other words, we are representing him well while we're here. And he's saying, look, if you're not salty, what good are you for? We throw out non-salty salt. If you're not a light, if you're not representing me, you're no good to me. All right? I saved you for this purpose that you'd be salt and light. So therefore, he says, be salty. It's a command. Be salty. Be light. Be a living sacrifice. Whatever that means. Putting to death the deeds of the flesh. Putting on Christ. Growing in Christ's likeness. Be salty. And I think he gives us, the specific application he gives us here is be at peace with one another. Be salty. Okay, what does that mean? What does that look like? He could have said a million things. Be salty. Do this. But what does he say? Be salty. Be at peace with one another. As far as it depends on you, be at peace. Don't look for fights. Don't instigate fights. This is God's people. The least of these, the little ones. Christ's bride. As far as it depends on you, be at peace with one another. This is what saltiness looks like. You know, I was thinking this past week about some of my hobbies that I have, that I enjoy doing, and I was thinking about how I've pretty much leveled out at all of them at some point in the past. I'm not getting any better at any of them. Uh, I was thinking, for example, of, of guitar. My guitar, I can play guitar, but I leveled out at guitar a long time ago. Like, I don't play any new songs, no new chords. I sound exactly the same now that I probably did 20 years ago. Um, golfing, you know, I, I'm not progressing at golf. I'm not a better golfer today than I was 20, 30 years ago. I'm you know? about the same. Uh, what else? Running, you know, I can run a little faster depending on how in shape I am. But for the most part, you know, I'm not going to be qualifying for the Olympics ever, you know, like I'll never be an Olympian level runner. And I just kind of have to know that and come to grips with that and be okay with that. Right? I, I've maxed out, I've leveled out at some level Uh, skiing I'd like to think that I can keep getting better at skiing but I think I'm guessing I've reached my limit at some point with skiing Um, what what else Um, oh fishing you know I somehow keep buying fishing stuff but I don't catch more fish (laughs) you know you'd think the more you invest the better you get right it doesn't work that way and I raise this point because I think this is probably if we're honest this is kind of the way we think about our Christian faith Like, we came to faith at some point in the past, and there was probably a great season of growth. You know, we got serious. We started reading our Bibles. It really took off, and things were, you know, putting to death these sins and really learning these new habits, and and today, you know, when we think about our Christian faith, my guess is a lot of us, we really think about the past. Like, I came to Christ when I was this many years old. I went to that retreat. I went to that conference. I read that book. I was involved in that Bible study. I was involved in that church. The Lord really grew me here. But this passage is reminding us the faith is not just about your past, it's about now. Like, Are you growing in the faith now? Are, you don't ever get to a point where you say, "Like, I'm done. The way I kind of think about golf and skiing, and I'm kind of like, I've maxed out. I still go enjoy doing things here and there, but I'm, I'm not getting better at those things. I can't have that mentality with the Christian faith. I can't have the mentality like, I'm kind of done. I've kind of learned. I've kicked the big sins. I've I've got some good disciplines down, and I can just kind of coast. You don't ever coast. You keep going to war against the flesh. Keep crucifying the flesh. Keep putting on Christ. Keep growing in holiness. Keep offering my body as a living sacrifice. So my question for you this morning is this. What is the next step you need to take in your growth, in your becoming more like Christ? Some of you may need to take a next step that looks like commitment to the corporate body, to the church. At our church, we use four words, worshiping, connecting, serving, impacting. Maybe you need to make it a priority to worship or a priority to get connected with a Bible study where there's accountability, prayer, getting to know people, people getting to know you. Maybe you need to get involved in serving some area where you're giving your time, energy to bless God's people or impacting, you're sharing your faith, you're sharing the gospel, building relationships with neighbors, inviting people to church, getting involved in missions. Or maybe for some of you, the next step is more like spiritual disciplines. You need to take the next step in your Bible reading, Bible study, or maybe you need to take the next step in praying, your prayer life, praying faithfully, praying as you read. Or maybe the next step for you is you really need to go to war against that particular sin that's just got a hold of your life right now. And you need to go to war and do whatever it takes. Jesus says do whatever it takes. It's not worth it. Do whatever it takes to go to war against it. Maybe there's some habit you formed along the way, and the next step you need to take is to crucify it. My encouragement to you from God's word this morning is this. Figure out what the next step is and take it the alternative is not worth it. And this brings us now to talk finally about sin and the gospel. It's fairly easy with a passage like this and a sermon like this for us to come away and say, well, that was about how we shouldn't sin because hell is hot. And uh, there's a sense in which that that is kind of the point of the passage. Uh, But it reminds me of a story I heard about Benjamin Franklin, who is a skeptic. And he went to hear George Whitfield preach. He was really mesmerized by George Whitfield's preaching. He went quite a few times. And one time he came home and his wife said, what did he preach about? And he said, he preached about sin. And she said, well, what did he say about it? And he said, She's a, he was against it. All right? And it's possible that you could think this is kind of the point of this passage. Jesus is talking about sin and he's against it. And there's a sense in which you're right. That, that is what the passage is about. But I don't want us to miss the bigger context. I don't want to just talk about sin and hell and miss the bigger context. The bigger context of Mark, the Gospel of Mark, the bigger context of the Gospel, the bigger context of the whole Bible. And here's the point I want to make here Jesus came for the purpose of telling us, to warn us that we were sinners enslaved, and if we remained in that condition, we would go to hell. He didn't come to send us to hell, we were already enslaved to sin on our way to hell. And Jesus didn't have to, but by his grace and his mercy, he chose to come and warn us and tell us, you are enslaved to sin, and if you remain in that state, you will experience eternal hell. It's like if somebody came pounding on your door at four o'clock in the morning and wake you up, at first you'd think, who in the world is this? What a nuisance. This would agitate you. Or worse. Or worse. But if you got to the door and they said, I woke you up because there's a fire at your house and you need to get out of the house, you wouldn't say, why'd you wake me up at four in the morning? You'd say, thank you. I owe my life to you. Jesus came, in a sense, to wake us up at four in the morning and say, you're enslaved to sin, and if you remain in it, it leads to your death. He came to warn us. But I want you to notice also, he didn't just come to warn us. He came to solve the problem. He came to experience the fire so you and I might not have to. And Jesus quenched the fire. He's the only person who can quench the fire. No one else, no mere man can quench the fire. Jesus alone, because of who he is, can quench the fire that we deserve. And guess what? At the cross, he did. He experienced the fire so you and I might not have to. He experienced hell at the cross so you and I might not have to. What is hell? It is God's necessary opposition to sin. His judgment, his wrath, his opposition to sin. What happened at the cross? Jesus took our sin on himself and experienced the wrath, satisfied the wrath so you and I might not have to. He alone could do it, and he alone did it for you and I. And I want you to notice that he did this not just solely so you get to go to heaven and have your mansion in the sky. He did this so that you might be set free from sin now. He came and did this so that we might be rescued and ransomed and set free from our sins so that we might not be on a path that leads to hell and we might live life the way it's actually supposed to be lived right now, which is free from sin. How do you know if Jesus has set you free from sin? Because you're free from sin. I don't mean that you live perfectly. Of course I don't mean that. I don't mean that you're never tempted again. Of course I don't mean that. I don't mean that you don't ever have down down times, falls. Of course I don't mean that. But I mean you'll know you've been set free from sin when you're set free from sin. There'll be evidence. There'll be proof. You will hear a passage like this and you'll want to respond to it. Something inside of you will say, I want to respond to God's Word, and I want to be one of those people that stirs one another up to love and good deeds. Did you experience that? Did you feel that? Did you sense the Spirit of God tugging at you when you heard God's Word preached to you? And you said, I want to, to respond to God's Word positively. If you did, that's a great indication. If you said, ah, who cares, no big deal. That's 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 concerning. Did you hear God's word and you say, I want to be a person who continues to grow and continues to go to war against the flesh and continues to grow in righteousness? Yes, I want to do that. I need to do that. What's the next step I need to take? Were you thinking to yourself, what's the next step I need to take? That's a really good indication the Spirit of God is at work in you. Take encouragement in that. If you thought, oh, he's probably not talking to me. This doesn't really relate to me. That's concerning. Be concerned, be alarmed. Jesus is trying to sound an alarm here in this passage for those who think, ah, no big deal. He's saying, this is not no big deal. Make sure you have responded and you are responding to Jesus by trusting that he experienced the fire that you deserve. He experienced it, though he didn't deserve it. Make sure you're trusting in him for that. And make sure you're trusting in him in, in an authentic sense, You prove it by responding to his teaching, his teaching about sin. But don't miss the bigger context. The bigger context, it's not just Jesus came and said, don't sin. If you do, you go to hell. That's not, don't miss the bigger context. Jesus saying, I came here because you're enslaved to sin, heading to hell, and I came to free you and rescue you so you can live a life that deep down you want to live and need to live and ultimately spend eternity with me make sure this morning you can say, my chains are gone. I've been set free. My God, my Savior has ransomed me. Let me pray for us. Father, we're grateful you sent your Son to come and warn us about the reality and the danger of hell. And Father, we're grateful even more so that not only did He come to warn us about this reality, but He Himself came to bear it He experienced the curse of the law that we were under. He he became a curse for us. Father, I'm confident there's someone here in this room right now, there's someone watching online who is enslaved right now and needs to be set free. They're enslaved to death. They're enslaved to sin. They're enslaved ultimately to hell. Father, I pray today would be the day you'd open their eyes and they would flee from it and flee to Christ and cling to Him and trust Him and be set free once and for all. And Father, I pray for those of us who are trusting in Christ, who have been set free, that we'll live like it, that we will live like living sacrifices, your salt and your light representing you well, even when the fire comes here and there, representing you well. I pray that our church will be a church where we gather for the purpose of stirring one another up toward love and good deeds for our good and for your glory. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.